This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. There are lots of questions that come up in every art history classroom or lecture hall, and we hear them again and again. What is art, really? And how do you define it? Why is the Mona Lisa smiling? What happened to the winged victory's arms? And then there's another one that you'll hear, or that you'll even think yourself especially if you are a fan of a particular Renaissance master's work. It's a question that I have personally heard being asked point-blank in class and whispered in sacred spaces in Rome and in Florence. Visitors straining their necks to stare up at a ceiling and others sneaking peeks at gleaming marble tombs have asked this question. Why, they wonder, why are Michelangelo's women so, well, so unwomanly? The colossal sibyls and Old Testament heroines that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, for example, and his marble personification of night on the tomb of Giuliano de' Medici in Florence have many of the same attributes. Essentially, these ladies are cut. The Cumaean sibyl has bigger guns than most pro athletes, and Knight's got a six-pack and quads so large that it looks like she spends her downtime on the elliptical. Michelangelo's ladies have the most beautiful, angelically pure faces, but when stripped down, many of them look very, very muscular, to an extent that they almost appear manly. And then there's the problem of Knight's left breast. The thing looks almost tacked on, like a misshapen afterthought. So what is really going on here? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In season 10, we are digging deep on some great art historical facts and fictions. And today we are going to uncover the conundrum of Michelangelo's women and some theories behind their design including a fascinating hypothesis set aside by a 21st century physician. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Michelangelo is arguably one of the greatest artists of all time. That man, like his fellow Renaissance man Leonardo, could really do anything. He could create vast architectural monuments, such as the square in front of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He was a poet who had written lyrical sonnets. He could paint gorgeously, and his sculptures are some of the most perfect ever created. People have been waxing poetic about his sculpture of David for hundreds of years. Artist biographer and frequent admirer of Michelangelo's, Giorgio Vasari, 
extolled that sculpture's perfection in an essay in 1550, writing, quote, For in it may be seen the most beautiful contours of legs, with attachments of limbs and splendid outlines of flanks that are divine. Nor has there ever been seen such a pose so easy, or any grace to equal that in this work, or feet, or hands, or head so well in accord, one member with another, in harmony, design, and excellence of artistry. Unquote. And when you see David in person, you agree, because Michelangelo could really create the perfect man out of stone or pigment. But the perfect woman? Well, not so much. Or at least not to our 21st century eyes, trained on photorealism, or really just photos. For someone who could visualize masculine corporeality so wonderfully, Michelangelo looks almost inept when it comes to his presentation of women. I want to be clear here and note that when I talk about Michelangelo's women, particularly these quote-unquote badly rendered subjects, I am talking mainly of his nude women, or those with large portions of their skin revealed, especially their arms and shoulders and legs and backs. So for the sake of argument, I am firmly excluding Michelangelo's other most famous sculpture, his Pietà, which is located today in St. Peter's in Rome as well as some other smaller works featuring women, such as the sometimes overlooked Bruges Madonna. Let's just all agree right now that the Vatican Pietà is probably one of the most tragically beautiful sculptures in all of art history. And if I could look at only one artwork for the rest of my life, I would most likely choose the Virgin's incomparable face. It is that beautiful and that brilliant. But why am I excluding it and the Bruges Madonna today? Well, because those women are completely clothed. Even their arms are fully clothed. But when Michelangelo portrayed partially uncovered or nude women, all bets were off. His images of women are still stunning and still amazing, but it doesn't take an art historian to point out that something is just a little bit off. Why, though, is the big question. Visual artists are usually so adept at seeing, really seeing, and being able to delineate details of anatomy in a naturalistic way, particularly from the Renaissance onwards. So really, why did Michelangelo make his women so manly? Michelangelo Buonarroti was born on March 6, 1475, in Caprese, Italy. His father didn't necessarily want his son to become an art apprentice, so Michelangelo didn't actively pursue this career until the age of about 13, which was considered somewhat late in life, believe it or not, to begin an artistic endeavor. He started out by apprenticing with the most prominent painter of Florence at that time, Domenico Ghirlandaio, who intended Michelangelo to study and learn from him for a full three years. But Michelangelo left after just one year because, as his other biographer, Ascanio Condivi, wrote, Michelangelo apparently had nothing else left to learn. He was that good. And if you've listened to any of my previous episodes on Art Curious where we've talked about Leonardo da Vinci, this story might sound a bit familiar to you. Now, who really knows if it is true, or if this whole student surpassing the master thing is just a trope? But we do see this in multiple occasions in art history. After he left Ghirlandaio's studio, Michelangelo lucked out. He was noticed by Florence's ruler, Lorenzo de' Medici, also known as Lorenzo the Magnificent. Lorenzo considered himself to be a great patron of the arts, and he sought to surround himself by the best and the brightest of his day. And this was a huge coup for the teenage Michelangelo to be among them. 
Not only did he then have access to the Medici family and all of their cultural connections, but he also had access to the Medici family's own art collection, which included some incredible fragments of ancient Greco-Roman sculpture. Just by looking at many of Michelangelo's works, you can tell that ancient sculpture had a particularly huge influence on the artist and his style. Now, this, as we've heard it for other episodes of this season, was not unique to Michelangelo. Plenty of the artists during the Renaissance were looking back at the ancients for inspiration, back toward the human body as the artistic ideal, and moving away from the staid and stiff forms that they perceived in the medieval period. But no one would imitate the ancients quite as well as Michelangelo would. Some people during his time even thought that he had outdone the ancients. Indeed, our old friend Vasari wrote about the David, quote, When all was finished, it cannot be denied that this work has carried off the palm from so many other statues, modern or ancient, Greek or Latin. No other artwork is equal to it in any regard. And with such just proportion, beauty and excellence did Michelangelo finish it. Unquote. Michelangelo moved away from Florence in 1494, not too long before the Medici family was deposed. He lived in Bologna for a few years before moving to another hotbed of cultural production, Rome. And it was in Rome that Michelangelo created his first masterpiece, his sculpture of a Roman god of wine, Bacchus. And as we might suspect, given Michelangelo's study of Roman sculpture, the Bacchus itself was based on ancient marbles, such as those he studied in the home of Lorenzo the Magnificent. However, there is a complexity and an energy that is found in his Bacchus that just isn't as present in most ancient sculpture. Wine goblet raised, Bacchus seems to peer out through clouded eyes, his balance rather precarious, as if he could topple any minute. Behind Bacchus, a small pan, or satyr, nibbles naughtily on a bunch of grapes, with the most self-satisfied smile. How different this seems to the cold, ancient sculpture that we might be used to seeing. In contrast, Michelangelo's marbles almost seem to breathe, with muscles so taut that we might hold our own breaths while we view them. For Michelangelo, this was a huge turning point. His Bacchus was considered so fantastic, so revolutionary for the time period that it led to one of the most important commissions of his life, the commission for his Pieta in St. Peter's Basilica. Truly, there is something so unbelievably great about this work. It did not go unnoticed. And it was from this point forward that Michelangelo's career began to snowball in the best possible way. Commission after commission came in, and each masterwork begat another. The Pietà led to the David, which led to his private commissions for smaller sculptures, as well as luminous paintings such as his Donitondo, a circular image of the Madonna and Child with St. Joseph. Mary, dressed in glowing pinks and blues, hoists the infant Jesus up above her head towards Joseph, her arm muscles bulging. Her right bicep is so defined and her arm cocked at a 90-degree angle that makes her seem like a Renaissance precursor to Rosie the Riveter. Mary's body is shaped like a triangle, a pyramid really, and this was quite purposeful on the artist's part. The pyramid was considered to be the most stable shape in all of art. Beginning with the ancient Egyptians, naturally, and moving throughout time onward toward the 20th century, 
Artists have long engaged in pyramidal structures to give a sense of power and permanence, and to guide the eye toward the most important figures in a composition. Like with the Bacchus, when you look at Michelangelo's paintings, you really get that sense of action, motion, and energy and strength. To me, the Donitondo feels like a direct precursor for what came next for our artist. And what came next for him is what's coming up next for us, right after this quick break. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy, and I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act. But how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find out charities that are out there, or you could visit GiveWell.org. There you'll get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar given. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities that they've found. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site with no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. After learning about them on GiveWell.org, I decided to donate to the Malaria Consortium, which is a seasonal malaria chemo prevention program to prevent malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. 
To claim your match, go to givewell.org, pick podcast, and enter Art Curious Podcast at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Art Curious to get your donation matched. Givewell.org, pick podcast, and enter Art Curious Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to Art Curious. In 1503, Julius II became Pope and ushered in a golden period of Vatican artistic commissions during the ten years of his reign. Like the Medici family in Rome, Julius had an eye for talent, and he requested the greatest contemporary artist to complete some truly massive undertaking within the papal palace. And yeah, don't forget this. All artists were, at one point, considered contemporary. So think about that next time you see a contemporary installation that you find inscrutable. Julius II requested that Raphael complete a stunning set of murals for the papal stanze, or reception rooms, and those are a fascinating topic in their own right, which we covered in a previous episode of Art Curious. But for most of us, when we hear about Julius, the one commission that really springs to mind is the ceiling for the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel has particular symbolism for the papacy and for the Catholic Church as a whole. To this day, it is used for various rather special events, but it is primarily known to us as the site where a new pope is elected and inaugurated. What happens there, then, is among the most sacred modern-day events in the Catholic worldview. As such, the location was already highly decorated with wall paintings and tapestries, But the ceiling, up to that point, as we've heard in the previous episode this season, was a little ignored. Originally consisting of a dark blue sky emblazoned with stars, Michelangelo was asked instead to come up with a new theme. At first, the agreed-upon idea was the Twelve Apostles, but Michelangelo instead took things in a new and different direction. He painted those twelve figures, but they weren't the ones that Julius and Vatican officials originally had in mind. Instead of apostles, he painted seven prophets and five sibyls, or female prophets, as traditionally depicted in ancient Greco-Roman art and mentioned in numerous classical texts. Down the center of the ceiling, then, he painted important scenes from the Old Testament book of Genesis, the creation of the world, including the travails of Adam and Eve, as well as stories about Noah both before and after the ark. All of this was surrounded with many figures representing the 40 generations of Christ's ancestors, as well as innumerable decorative flourishes. The crazy part about all of this was that Michelangelo completed the project in less than four years. And this would have been an unbelievable achievement for any artist, really. But this is also coming from someone who didn't consider himself to be a very good painter. I always say that it's easy for us to laugh today to think of Michelangelo saying that about himself, but it was true. He didn't think he was truly cut out for his paintbrush, and he was far more at home with a chisel in his hand. But no matter if he was painting or sculpting them, Michelangelo's women are all a little too built. 
They have shoulders that an Olympic swimmer would envy, thighs as thick as tree trunks, in a good way, of course, and arms that would crush you. My personal favorite of the five Sibyls is the Libyan Sibyl, the prophetess who is said to have lived at the Siswa Oasis in the Libyan desert. Bathed in the most brilliant gold-orange tunic, the Libyan Sibyl's body corkscrews as she turns back to either grab or replace a humongous book on a shelf behind her. And just from the size of that book alone, you've got to know that it must weigh a ridiculous amount. So as she lifts, the muscles in her back ripple and her shoulders bulge. And yet, she is so beautiful, so graceful. These sibyls are just as monumental as their prophet counterparts in the Sistine Chapel, and there's nothing remotely soft about them as they threaten to bust out of the painted architecture surrounding them. In fact, women like the Libyan sibyl, or even the Madonna from the Donitondo, seem to have little in common with the sweet, albeit massive, Roman Pietà. Why are they so muscular? What did Michelangelo base his designs of these women on? Is it just as simple, then, as the fact that he may have based all of his women on men? Jill Burke, a lecturer in Italian Renaissance art history at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, has written a wonderful series where she directly delves into this topic with a not-so-subtle blog post titled Men with Breasts. She begins her discussion by saying that a common explanation for the whole phenomena of women who look like men in Michelangelo's works is because of the lack of access to the nude female model during the Renaissance. As we've talked about time and again, it was deemed inappropriate at best, and morally reprehensible at worst, for women to be nude in the company of men to whom they were not married. This has long been the accepted theory, with numerous reiterations of this theme mentioned in equally numerous publications. But Jill Burke notes that this explanation is right and wrong, too. As she very clearly explains, for many women, especially women of the upper classes, there was strict control over dress and comportment in the Renaissance, as well as long after. It's also true that many of the female figures in Renaissance paintings were based on male models. This was a common practice for many artists of the time. So Michelangelo drafting and designing from the nude model is not out of line here. And we do know that Michelangelo did this. And in fact, his Libyan sibyl from the Sistine Chapel was based originally on a male figure, as it is believed. But what is not true is that male models necessarily made for unconvincing depictions of women. Because multiple masterpieces are known to have been based on the male nude, only to be very feminine or women appearing in that final look. Burke points specifically to Raphael's St. Catherine of Alexandria as a painting that is a pure example of this. She's curvy and buxom, with her right hip jutting out in such a sensuous curve. Raphael. Now he could really paint a lady. And don't forget that in every time period, there was also a strong contingent of women who were willing to model nude for money or with other favors in return. Burke writes, quote, Although there's not very many drawings after the female nude still in existence, there's plenty of evidence for Renaissance artists having naked women models, especially after 1500. As a matter of fact, one of the handful of extant Renaissance drawings after the female nude is by Michelangelo, and it is now in the Louvre. This image of a naked kneeling woman, her hair plaited around her head, is a study for Mary Magdalene in his unfinished entombment panel, 
which was painted around 1500 for the Church of Sant'Agostino in Rome. If Michelangelo then knew what women's bodies looked like and was clearly able to draw them, being quite handy at drawing, then we have to assume that the appearance of his women was through deliberate choice rather than ignorance. Unquote. There is, of course, another point frequently made in lecture halls of introductory art history classes. Michelangelo was gay, and thus his images of women don't necessarily point only to his lack of access to nude women from which to paint or to sculpt, but instead to his complete disinterest or even disgust towards women's bodies. Now, I am not going to sit here and tell you that I think I know what a man who lived 600 years ago was thinking, but I can say this. Doesn't it seem a little bit reductive to assume that if a man indeed was gay, that it would affect his own artistic abilities? Michelangelo could draw, and that much is certain. His draftsmanship was nearly unparalleled during the Renaissance. So I am fairly certain that he could accurately depict the human body however he wanted. And it also seems limiting to think that someone could be so turned off by the opposite sex that it would affect his artistic abilities, though I suppose that that is possible. Another theory very closely related to this focuses not on disgust, but on attraction. Historians have long argued that Michelangelo, being gay, simply found the male form to be more empirically beautiful. So, in response, if Michelangelo was hoping to portray a beautiful woman, then he'd simply design her to appear as close to a man as possible. There's nothing that an art historian loves more than context. And the context that's frequently given for these works of art stems from the discussion of Renaissance Italy as an aggressively patriarchal society. The difference between the genders was rather vast in the Renaissance. And of course, women were not seen as remotely equal to men in any way, but especially not physically. Historian Thomas Lacker has written, quote, There was only one canonical body, and that body was male, unquote. Meaning that everything else was considered imperfect or subpar, a deviation from the preferred or the normative. This line of thinking was so ingrained that for hundreds of years, the bodies used to demonstrate human physiology in anatomical manuscripts were always male, unless the text specifically covered childbirth. But if there's nothing else that we haven't learned from looking back in time, it's that women aren't worth much if they're not procreating, right? Even the preeminent art historian Kenneth Clark subscribed to this theory, stating that, quote, the artist considered the female physique to be inferior to that of the male, unquote. There does seem to be additional theological or psychological bent to this theory, though. Burke takes this women-as-a-substandard-version-of-men argument back, all the way back, and reminds us that in Genesis, Eve was literally made from Adam's rib. Adam, the first man, was also the first human, and thus Eve is a derivative copy. And let's not forget that the creation of Eve is actually depicted in Michelangelo's Sistine ceiling. So, was Michelangelo then really as misogynistic as we are led to believe? Well, no, at least not according to one art historian. This time, we are speaking about Elizabeth Lev, who lives and works in Rome and gives frequent talks and tours about art in the Vatican. And she says that Michelangelo is actually far from misogynistic. 
He grew up in a household full of women, that of his nurses or wet nurses household. And his quote-unquote official biography by Condivi begins with an incredibly reverent discussion of Michelangelo's mother and his relationship with her. Later in life, he had a very devoted relationship with a widow named Vittoria Colonna, who was a noblewoman and a poet with whom he frequently exchanged letters and verses. See our little curious episode about this for more. And remember, too, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was one of Michelangelo's most frequent subjects. Some, yes, were commissioned works, but others were created simply because the artist was drawn to depict this particular figure. Michelangelo may not have been sexually attracted to women, but I very much doubt that he despised or detested them. For me, I love to think about things in terms of symbolism, so I prefer one specific reading of Michelangelo's Mighty Women. All of these figures, Mary from the Donitondo, the Sistine Chapel Sibyls, even Michelangelo's own take on St. Catherine of Alexandria, which is far more robust than Raphael's version, these are all the physical embodiments of strength, particularly religious strength. This was one of the arguments that has been posited by art historian Yael Even, whose specialty is the study of women in art. In fact, Even's article is one of the few that I've seen which directly and distinctly looks at the entirety of Michelangelo's artistic output, and she notes that she sees two specific categories of women represented therein. First are the Pieta women, who are the embodiment of the traditional female virtues of humility, piety, submission, and even resignation. The Virgin of the Pieta is one who is lamenting and resigned to the sorrow of losing her beloved son. And this is contrasted with the second type of Michelangelo's women, who are sturdy, strong, and heroic. The images of these women are as capable and victorious individuals. So, how best to make these women into heroines, especially heroines for the greater good of God? In order to do that, you need to give them the physical attributes of heroes. So they need to be strong and muscular, mighty, and massive. Just like men. For me, this theory totally tracks and plays out well within Michelangelo's descriptions. And it would also make sense that he would be using other design-based attributes to drive the point home even further, as in that pyramid shape of the Madonna in the Donitondo that we mentioned earlier. Want more on Michelangelo's women? You've got it. There's still more to come right after this quick break. So don't go away. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're a creative person, a visual person, drawn to story and eager to make something of your own. So here's something interesting that might be right up your alley. A program designed for both aspiring and established filmmakers. 
NYU Tisch is offering a slate of online courses this spring on screenwriting and documentary filmmaking using a remote learning platform with some powerful and unique features. But this isn't the normal kind of online classes you might be expecting, all basic video and no instructor feedback or class participation. These courses from NYU Tisch Pro go beyond that with an intuitive, interactive interface and polished, clear visuals. This experience is designed to be digital from the ground up rather than adapted from a traditional course, so it all looks and feels great at every turn. Whether you're collaborating with other students around the world as part of a virtual film crew or setting up a one-on-one interaction with your instructor, you can do it all directly and seamlessly from Tisch's platform. I really like one feature that allows your professor or virtual crewmate to leave a comment at a specific point on a video timeline so that you can zero in on exactly what it is they're talking about. Plus, the courses are designed to offer total scheduling flexibility, so students can delve into the material at their own pace, reviewing video lectures delivered by Tisch faculty and produced by real-life filmmakers. And no experience or background of film is needed. How amazing does that sound? With NYU's Tisch Pro Online, you can learn how to bring your story to life. 2022 is right around the corner, and this is a great way to act on your New Year's resolution. It's time to finally get that story you've been thinking about out of your head and onto the screen. The deadline for spring courses is January 7th, so act now. Learn more at tishpro.smashcut.com slash artcurious. That's T-I-S-C-H-P-R-O dot smashcut.com slash Art Curious. Welcome back to Art Curious. One of the prime comparisons that Yael even makes to illustrate her point about the two types of Michelangelo women stem from the very same project, the Medici Chapel in the Basilica of San Lorenzo in Florence, Italy. These tombs hold the final remains of two semi-insignificant Medici sons, Giuliano di Lorenzo de' Medici and Lorenzo di Piero de' Medici. Michelangelo designed both tombs so that each has two flanking nude figures, one female and one male. Each nude is a personification of a time of day. So for the women, we have a representation of night on the tomb of Giuliano and dawn on the tomb of Lorenzo. But the women, presenting opposite times of day, also have fairly opposite physical attributes. I am not the first, and certainly will not be the last, to note that Dawn is more languid and sensual and curvy, lounging there upon Lorenzo's tomb with a slightly softened belly and much more rounded breasts. Night, as I mentioned at the beginning, is a much odder creature. Head bowed and muscular thighs bent upwards towards her belly, which is somewhat misshapen but still pretty robust. Night is an anomaly. She's even more androgynous than most of Michelangelo's women, outpacing the Donitondo for sure, and certainly moving past the Sistine Sibyls as well. Androgyny may have been one of Michelangelo's goals, though, because it is a way to achieve what was considered the most idealistic human figure during the Renaissance. At that time, there was much appreciation for the idea of the so-called composite form, a combination of the best traits of women and men, and that combining them would create a perfect harmony of human figures. In fact, this was something highly discussed among courtiers in Italy during this time, with scholars like the humanist Mario Equicola writing, quote, The visage of a woman is praised if it has the features of a man, the face of a man if it has the feminine features. 
Hence the proverb, the effeminate male and the manly female are graceful in almost every aspect, unquote. So if an artist could pull off this tricky androgyny, then their art, and thereby the artist him or herself, would be deemed an incredibly talented artist. And this appears to have been the case for Michelangelo, as well as for Leonardo da Vinci, as we discussed in the first episode of this 10th season. Another very influential writer who was both a contemporary of Michelangelo and Equicola was a man named Pietro Arentino, and he wrote about Michelangelo's women in a 1542 letter to the Duke of Urbino, noting that Michelangelo's figures were so ideal, quote, with the body of the female and the muscles of the male, so that with an elegant vivacity of artifice, she is moved by masculine and feminine sentiments, unquote. Still, bringing us back to the Medici Chapel, there's this element that most people, professional and amateur art historians alike, fixate upon as an apparent sign of Michelangelo's inability to accurately portray the human body. That element is the representation of knights' breasts. They are indeed misshapen and lumpy, and they're high up on the woman's chest and splayed out to either side. For many, this links directly back to that whole male model in the place of the female model idea. Some art historians, including Jill Burke, have noted that Renaissance writers extolled the virtues of a particular breast size and shape, and the ideal was small, rounded, and, quote, hard as apples, unquote. Here, it isn't that hard to imagine that Michelangelo may have taken the idea of a man's chest and simply superimposed two apples there. And it has been suggested that in this case, Michelangelo did in fact derive many of the parts of Knight from a male model. A preparatory study of Knight can be found in the British Museum, dating from around 1520, that seems to confirm this. But I don't buy it as the only explanation for Knight's appearance. Again, I'd like to think that Michelangelo was no novice or dummy. And remember that Knight's counterpart of Dawn just steps away doesn't have that same physiological problem. No, Michelangelo sculpted Knight like this on purpose. So the question is, why? It may come down to the simplest answer of the contrast between opposites. Dawn is open, waking up, rising to the day, while night is closed, partially hidden from the viewer's gaze, and resigning herself to the end of the day. Dawn is life, or the resurrection, or the afterlife. Night, simply, is death. And so the masculine and feminine elements just further play into this distinction. With the revisionism of the 20th century came new theories about night in particular, and also about Michelangelo's women as a whole. One that I find particularly intriguing is that the body shapes of night and dawn are meant to illustrate the different phases of life, which, again, checks out when you think about the symbolism of night as the end and dawn as the beginning. But some certainly took this viewpoint to the extreme. For old-school art historians like Erwin Panofsky, dawn was a young woman's easy life. She's soft yet firm, full of vigor and energy, but not yet hardened, physically or mentally, by life. Panofsky even uses the word virginal to describe her. In direct opposition, then, is Knight. Panofsky says that Knight's body has been, quote, 
distorted by childbirth and lactation. It does seem vaguely misogynistic for Panofsky to say this, and again, I'm not entirely sure that I buy it, but it is a really interesting thought. There's one more point about Knight that I find even more fascinating. In November of 2000, a letter to the editor was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. This letter is fairly short and succinct, and it was written by a physician hailing from Portsmouth, Virginia, named James Stark. He was inspired to write the letter after visiting the Medici Chapel in Florence in the company of an art historian named Jonathan Katz Nelson. And like many others before him, Stark fixated on Knight's strange appearance. But unlike most of us who ask, why? Dr. Stark, an oncologist, said, I think I know why. I have an explanation. What follows are excerpts from Stark's letters. Quote, I found three abnormalities associated with locally advanced cancer in the left breast. There is an obvious large bulge to the breast contour medial to the nipple, a swollen nipple areola complex, and an area of skin retraction just lateral to the nipple. These features indicate a tumor. These findings do not appear in the right breast of night or in Dawn, another female figure in the Medici Chapel, or in the many other depictions of women in works by Michelangelo. We suggest that Michelangelo carefully inspected a woman with advanced breast cancer and accurately reproduced the physical signs in stone. Even if he did not see the disease in a model, he would have studied the corpse of a woman. Moreover, autopsies were legal at this time. Given that Michelangelo depicted a lump in only one breast, he presumably recognized this as an anomaly. Many doctors in his day could probably diagnose this condition in a woman. Historians of breast cancer agree that the disease and its treatment were discussed, often at length, and described as cancer by the most famous medical authorities of antiquity and by several prominent medieval authors. For these reasons, there is a strong possibility that Michelangelo intentionally showed a woman with disease and that he may have known that the illness was cancer. If Michelangelo indeed depicted Knight as having a consuming disease, this would complement the imagery in the Medici Chapel of life and death, and further help us understand his study of the female body. Coming up next time on Art Curious, we're going to bust one of the most pervasive myths about art history's favorite tortured artist. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Season one is available now. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. 
Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, InkerLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit InkerLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free during this holiday season to Art Curious to show your support. To find the donation links and for more details about our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Instagram, Twitter, and more at artcuriouspod. Check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the facts and the fictions of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.